Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Now, I've got a book list thing for you. You must all write this down. M.J. Weiner, English Culture and the Decline of the Industrial Spirit. He is, of course, an American academic historian, and he's talking about a process that, according to him, started in the 1860s, the decline of the industrial spirit, the flight from mucky brass-making places in the north to lovely landowning lives in Gloucestershire. It's been going on a long time. Anyway, we want to stop all that. Um, I'm a capitalist too, and I've been engaged for the last 30 years in a very particular kind of manufacturing process, and it's the development and maintenance of brands, product brands, service brands, corporate brands, institutional brands, and country brands, including ours, um, crucial to it all. Brands are central to the trade of developed countries. At every level, Prof. Sodri chose to cite brands first in his four-point list. We don't, for the most part, sell commodities in 2012. And those of us who do sell commodities are always being advised to get out of this and add value in all sorts of ways. And the crucial way of adding value, so people will say, is by being branded. And we sell brands and the business of branding. And in the last century, we considered ourselves rather good at brandology. The famous creative industries, which this government and the last government have endorsed. It was really funny listening to Gordon Brown at the National Gallery saying, it says here, creative industries are, are wonderful. I, I don't think he understood a word of it, but nonetheless, he said it, and it's a, it's a start. And in Marcom's design, PR, all that, WPP is the world's largest Marcom's business. It's a particular kind of manufacturing. But where do we stand now? Where do we stand now in world markets with new sectors and segments and geographies and competitors. How are we doing in the international brand business? We have, I think, there are all these things about international brands and their values are sort of faintly absurd, but that's, it's all we've got. And we, we look at those lists of international brands and their values. And what that says is, how much does a brand contribute to the market cap of a given business? And we don't do that well, considering our size and our history. In the interbrand, global top 100 brands, the US, of course, sweeps the board. Japan has seven. France has seven. I think I've got my sums right. Germany has 10. We've got either three or four, depending on which version you read. So is there a problem there? Or have I framed it? wrongly. Here to discuss all this is, first, Ian Brinkley, who was director of the Work Foundation. It was formerly, and I wonder how they did that bit of rebranding, is formerly the Industrial Society. 
And, well, I suspect you'll have cause to regret that bit of modish you know, rebranding. It's very 90s. <laughs> and Ian Brinkley follows Will Hutton, so he'd better be pretty operatic. Because Will Hutton always, always operatic. He's worked for the TUC as its chief economist, amongst other things. He's been a policy wonk and a special pleader. Dawn Stubbs is a knitwear clothing designer. She's been working with British brands who make here and British brands who make there, somewhere else, for the last 22 years, most recently with John Smedlin, makers of my favourite little merino sweaters. It's Uniqlo now, made of cheapest cotton, 30 bolt thing, but I do love a bit of John Smedley. Um, Sir Andrew Kahn is a former public servant, working in the Cabinet Office, the FCO, the Minivag, Brussels, after the civil service he joined BA, and then, most crucially, he became CEO of UKTI. I call it, and he may describe it rather better, this country's practical supporter of business. It's an arm of government, a business abroad. Um, and Leslie Batchelor is Director General, and I love, I want to be a Director General or something, it's, <laughs> God, it's so good, but you have to have an institute to be Director General of. She is Director General of the Institute of Export, which gives professional qualifications in international trade. So it's, you give them, you accredit them, all those things. She's a former corporate manager with major international businesses like Fujitsu, Canon, Coca-Cola Europe, etc. And as you expect, she knows a lot about international trade. I'm going to start by asking each of them to give their views on how UK brands are doing globally. Five minutes worth and what we need to do to compete effectively in future, then I'll ask them to sort of argue furiously uh, a bit, and then it's sort of, it'll, it'll be your turn. So in what order should we do this? I've got an order, so there's no logic in it. Dawn. First and worst. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I um, count myself very lucky as a designer in, in the course of my um, career so far to have actually been um, engaged with four different manufacturers and three of them still exist and still, still manufacture it um, in this country. So I think that's a very fortunate position to be in because as a designer to actually kind of be able to go into a company and create the products that you're designing to actually see firsthand how they're being made is probably the, uh, the biggest kick and also the biggest advantage to your, to your particular job. Um, I suppose the, over the years those, um, those brands have, or those com manufacturing companies have had to evolve themselves into brands. Um, and that sometimes comes a, a little bit difficult to a British manufacturer um, to actually stand up and say our product is, is the best in the world and this is what we make and we can promote it. And that sometimes that active promotion is the bit that actually holds back um, the company. Um, British brands at the end of the day were born out of um, that, that whole um, ability to make fine products or be the purveyors of fine products. 
So, and, and I like to think that as a nation, we make things, whatever we're making, to be very well made, to be very robust and built to last. So I think we do that in clothing, we do that in everything we do. And those are kind of the significant um, aspects that we take into a, a global marketplace to attract an international audience. Um, I've also been lucky to see a big rise in the popularity of uh, British brands and particularly British made products, um, particularly in the Japanese market, which um, was a huge kind of surge of, um, of input and has had some slight meltdown in the fact that the Japanese have started to look to their own brands and their own market much more and say, actually, we make pretty good things as well. You know, we're looking at all of those aspects that make the reason why we like to buy British goods, and actually we've got them as well in our market. So I, I think that's great. Celebrate what, what you do well. But there is still a thirst for those, um, those British-made um, products, certainly, in those marketplaces. I think um, as, a, as, a, as a country as well, we, we export design extremely well. I think, um, I think in, in exporting the products that we make and the manufacturing, we've also been able to export our, our design and some of the, um, the some British, quite a number of British designers head up some of the very illustrious European um, fashion houses in particular, but also some of the leading technologies and um, creative industries as well across the world. And I think that's, that's um, testament really to um, the strength of, of design in Britain and how we can promote that. So I think I might be straying over my five minutes. No, not at all. <laughs> so manufacturing companies in this country have to turn into brands and they sometimes find it a bit difficult. Mm. Yes, I think I think if you've got companies that are um, that have been making for um, a considerable amount of time and actually selling sort of through channels in a very um, sort of almost covert way to actually then sort of put your head above, above the parapet and say we are a brand in our own right. This is what we stand for. Um, sometimes that's difficult and challenging to kind of market um, that out into the into the. The global arena. And are they shy of Marcom's investment to back it up? <laughs> comparable with R&D, comparable with HR, all those things that they did ought to be doing if you're going to have a brand. Highly, highly possible that that is, that is one of the significant things. I, thought, I think it's a way of knowing how to do it best as well. And I think some of the, um, um, the smaller, I think the focus has turned back in, in Britain onto the, the craftsmanship of the products, the skills of the people who make. And there, there have been a number of growing um, smaller niche brands who appeal to a select audience who are making real specialist products. And I think they're actually finding it probably slightly, slightly easier because it's, it's all by, it's, a lot of it's by word of mouth to spread their, their message. But if you go, if you um, search for British brands or truly British-made products, you'll find them, but they're not that obvious to you. Earlier, we were hearing in the first session, I don't know whether you hear, um, a designer talking about the problems, I mean, this isn't the area of jewellery, 
of getting British manufacturers to invest either in skills, yes. proper apprenticeships, yeah. or in new technology of manufacturing, so you could get that premium, so you weren't competing with low-cost economies. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Andrew. Peter, thank you. Um, let me start by taking you back two years to the Shanghai Expo, um, where Britain's um, uh, pavilion won the prize for best pavilion. And what we were about, I, I was sort of in charge of that project, what we were about was trying to change the image of Britain overseas. We did some uh, research, market research in China, and Chinese consumers had a view of Britain which essentially came out of Charles Dickens. It was all cobblestones and mist, swirling fogs, <laughs> and policemen and with their hats and, the, and telephone boxes. It, it was heritage Britain. We wanted to change their image uh, to one of Britain being a forward-looking, creative, exciting, and manufacturing economy. And actually, we did quite well. Um, I'm a great believer in prestige projects because I think the national brand really matters, as, as Peter was saying earlier on. I think the Olympics are a great thing because I think it promotes the image of Britain around the world. Actually, I think British football is a great thing. You know, I, I remember being in an incredibly remote village in the mountains of Omar, talking to a boy of about nine, through with my guide, acting as interpreter, and we had a very easy conversation because it was all about was Manchester United better than Manchester City or not. In Oman, in a remote village, ma football matters. And it's not just in Oman. I've had that same conversation in a remote area of China and in a remote area of Vietnam. Football is important for British image overseas. Anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is that I think the national brand matters because it's an umbrella for the brands which are exporters and in particular our manufacturing exporters have. Um, incidentally, I think it's also vital that the BBC uh, and its World Service, which I think should be funded, <coughs> funded much more substantially, I think that's another huge umbrella under which our manufacturers can, uh, can thrive. But we have seen, I think, in terms, of manu uh, in terms of the national image, a shift from heritage Britain, which is essentially how we sort of thought of ourselves, I think, in the, when I was a, a little boy in the 1950s, through cool Britannia, which was much derided, but it's not, in, in fact, entirely stupid, through to an image now which I think is of, of quality Britain and innovative Britain, and certainly creative Britain. Um, let me just give you a few examples of the manufacturing brands which sit underneath that umbrella. We have, as Peter Luck was saying, a highly successful uh, manufacturing sector in the traditional sense, cars, aeroplanes, trains, power stations, uh, Rolls-Royce, one of the uh, you know, three major uh, uh, engine manufacturers in the world. That is an extraordinary achievement. Uh, Brazil wants to compete. China wants to compete. It's extremely difficult to do well in that business, but Rolls-Royce is right at the top of its game. A private sector company like JCB uh, is one of the top th world's top three manufacturers of, of all those sort of moving, those big yellow things which make uh, motorways extraordinarily uh, successful private sector company. BA Systems, one of the sponsors today, 
absolutely the largest defense uh, manufacturer in this country, the larger, with Rolls-Royce, the largest uh, uh, R&D, creative R&D in this country. We also have a huge number of brands which are foreign-owned, and that's why I ask the question of people of. And it's not just in the defense sector, uh, it's in uh, every sector. We have the largest amount of inward investment in this country, any country in the world, after America. And I think that's a hugely strong uh, uh, support for our manufacturing sector, that uh, you need to defend that constantly, because there's always the populist idea, we don't want foreigners owning our, uh, owning our companies. Don't forget, it's not only about manufacturing in this country. We have major manufacturing uh, uh, companies which manufacture globally. That also is not a bad thing. When GSK uh, employs 97,000 people in over 100 countries, and when they manufacture overseas as they are, they have a very big manufacturing plant in China, for example, that enables them to grow and makes them stronger in this country. Uh, Diageo, you manufacture whiskey, you manufacture vodka, you manufacture gin and they do it globally, hugely successful, employing 20,000 people in 80 countries. Um, what is a service, what is uh, a manufacturing industry? I agree with Peter again where he says uh, all the creative industries are in effect a form of manufacturing. Let's take the example of ARM, ARM. Every single handset that is manufactured in the world has an ARM uh, component in it. Except ARM don't manufacture they license the manufacturing around the world, but they do the R&D in this country. They get uh, the royalties. They are an enormous, I mean, they are the most successful company in their niche in the world. And uh, that is, I think, part of manufacturing too. And finally, just uh, one other example. Think of Fosters or Arabs, who are an essential underpinning to those marvelous set of buildings and constructions around the world. You wanted to mention, the renovation of the Reichstag, the Milar Viaduct, the new Hong Kong uh, airport, uh, the Mazda development in Abu Dhabi, the Birzness Stadium uh, and the, uh, the water cube uh, in Beijing for the China Olympics, the CCTV headquarters in Beijing, the Sydney Opera House, the London Eye, the Shard, uh, all of these uh, happen, some of them overseas, some here, because of the input of all our professional services. So I end up because it must be my five minutes, but I, I end up um, essentially by saying uh, that uh, uh, unlike MOD, Peter Luff said MOD don't care about brands, they don't matter. I quite understand that. If he's spending taxpayers' money, I want him to think about all, all about uh, quality and value. But brands do matter. Brands are absolutely essential. The national brand matter, the individual brands matter, uh, but what we mustn't do, I think, for Britain is to think that what matters are, uh, uh, that we are narrowly populist, saying we must always be British. We are a global trading nation, and we need global brands. Thank you. Well, whose job is it to sell that story back into this country? I mean, you, well, whose job is it to say what you've said on a regular basis? As a, well, it was a committee's job to tell us where we're doing well in a perfectly realistic, unboosterish way, but make sure that it contributes to our feelings about ourselves and our feelings about what matters in the economy. 
Well, I think it's, it's it ministers, first of all. I thought Peter Luck was just a little unfair on Gordon Brown uh, that he didn't know about creative ministries. I, I assure you he did. And when he was making that speech, I probably wrote it for him. But he, he really did uh, know about it, uh, as does David Cameron. I mean, I, I think I had three great ministers who are out there as salesmen. Digby Jones, yeah. Mervyn Davis, yeah. and now Stephen Green. Uh, this is a non-partisan point. Both the last Labour government was really focused on going out and selling Britain, and the present government, uh, perhaps even more so, and there's a real focus on commercial diplomacy. And I, just sort of a plug for William Hay, who has come, came in as Foreign Secretary and said, I don't want the Foreign Office all of, to be all about uh, uh, you know, arms treaties and, uh, uh, and sort of intelligence about who's going to win the next election in Somalia. I want the Foreign Office also to be about promoting Britain. And he said commercial diplomacy is one of the three big objectives uh, of the Foreign Office. That's great. You've got Vince Cable doing the same thing in the Department of Business. So fundamentally, it's going to be for ministers, but it's also for all sorts of organisations, like Leslie's, for example. Well, it needs to be done uh, in a, a more joined-up way. Uh, we need to know more of these glories. Um, in your former role, you were punting these glories to the world. Somebody needs to merchandise them, as we used to say, back into this country on a consistent basis and have everyone in government recognise. That's one area where people need to be on theme, isn't it? Um, Ian. OK, right. Well, I'm not Will Hutton, and I'm not going to do opera for you. Um, and the Industrial Society originally was, of course, set up to stop Bolshevism sweeping over Western Europe. And by, <laughs> 2002, uh, yeah. by 2002, we thought we'd probably achieve that historic mission, so um, we became the Work Foundation. Um, you've, your first question was, how are brands doing? And there are different ways of measuring it. And one way we've been looking at it is, how much do companies in Britain actually spend on brand equity compared to others? And on that mark, we're actually not doing that badly. Uh, there are a couple of co big countries that do more than us. Other countries, such as Japan and Germany, spend rather less. Perhaps the quality of their products, they think, maybe speak for them. But looking at what companies actually spend, then we're not doing too badly. Um, secondly, we've been doing a lot of thinking around what are called knowledge-based intangibles, which is a dreadful technical term. But brand equity is part of it. Design is part of it. Software is part of it. Investing in people is part of it. Now, why does that matter? Well, because in every industrialised economy, we are shifting away from investing in physical infrastructure into these knowledge-based assets. And it particularly matters for manufacturing, because manufacturing has gone further down that journey than almost any other sector of the economy. Manufacturing now invests more in this stuff than it does in physical factories, equipment and machinery. So this is a big deal for manufacturing. And particularly operating in global markets, the ones that have been most successful are those who have been able to combine that high-quality product and developing all the services that go alongside it. Classic example is Rolls-Royce. It gets more of its profit, more of its sales, from the services that go along with its engine. Anyone can produce a high-quality engine in any of the major economies. It's packaging it up into that service uh, which they can then sell to the airlines that makes them such a successful, successful economy. And thinking about how brand equity and the building of brand equity, how that actually 
helps drive the innovation system, particularly within manufacturing, is something that now we're now giving an awful lot of thought to within the Work Foundation. There's, this, again, this dreadful technical phrase, the innovation ecosystem. How does that work in the UK? What are the areas we're good at? What are the areas we're not good at? Uh, and I think thinking about um, what bits actually support having a great industry that can produce brands and brand products is an essential part of that. So in manufacturing, we tend to think of uh, investments in R&D or the quality of our engineers. Actually, we should be thinking just as much about the quality of our art and design schools and the people who come out of them because they're just as important for the future of manufacturing as the engineering bases. But what about the substantive expenditure? You say that we're not doing too badly in, in brand spending, and that's central. Are we maybe spending rather too, amount, relatively, slightly too much, not absolutely too much? Are we lagging on the other counts? We, 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 we don't know two essential things. One is we don't know whether this is money well spent. We're, we might be putting in much the same as others, but are we getting the same out? And we simply don't know that. Uh, and the second, no one has come up with an ideal share of GDP that you ought to be investing in this. Um, we know that, uh, for example, Finland invests an awful lot. Well, is that just Nokia uh, pushing out huge sums of money? Uh, we know that Germany doesn't invest, invest about a quarter less than we do. But is that because German manufacturing companies in particular uh, either much more effective at uh, selling their bland, brand, or other things uh, uh, can take their place. So maybe we are, if we are spending more on brand, are we doing it to compensate for weaknesses elsewhere? Mm. Well, the Finns have their own darling little stock exchange, and at Nokia, it's some immense proportion of it. Is it? Mm, so yes. the fate of that brand, um, the whole of Finland rests on it and their ability to consume venison for, um, for all time. Um, uh, but, I mean, I come back to it, that, um, this whole question of what representation should we reasonably expect to have in those admittedly imperfect world top 100 brand lists. And at the moment, you might, you know, doing very approximate arithmetic, you might say that we are lagging behind uh, our most important, obvious competitors. You know, if you, you try to wait for population or whatever, you know, leave the, uh, the USA out of, out of consideration because they sweep the board. Leslie. Well, um, uh, I don't know whether I'm going to... Uh, uh, diversify here, but um, the Institute of Exports, a professional membership organisation, uh, we have two strands. One is that we represent our members and one is that we produce education programmes uh, and we help people to go into international markets. Well, uh, going into international markets means we have to try and uh, explain to people how they should market themselves, some of the cultural awareness issues that they have to look at and really try and get them to understand what they're doing with their image internationally. Um, sometimes we're working with small engineering firms who really don't always understand about their brand and don't always understand about what image they project. 
So when you're talking about these large investments in branding, I, would, I, would, I don't know where you get your statistical analysis from, but you know, from the sort of empirical stuff that we do, we would tend to say that a lot of people feel that it's a waste of money. When you're trying to get them to think about uh, spending money on this, they don't see it as an investment, they see it as a cost. We still struggle trying to get people to spend money on market research and then actually sometimes once they've spent that money to actually turn around and say, no, that isn't a good decision to make, I'm not going to that market. Too many people carry on even though they've spent that money thinking that they have to go on because they've spent that money in the first place. It's a confusing world. Um, my uh, concern about intellectual property and, and brands is that the big brands are always going to be there and people will always get into a big brand. Uh, it's growing a brand that worries me. It's the fact that the smaller businesses that are coming through don't have a perception of, of how to protect their brand or what they're doing when they're going into a new market. Um, and I suppose my point that I'd like to make is we need to embed intellectual property into our business studies courses. When we're teaching people about business, we want it to be at the beginning of those courses rather than at the end as an add-on. Exactly the same as I want international trade to be embedded in business courses too. So that when you start thinking an idea, nowadays, you know, 20 years ago, you started a business, you could be just local. Nowadays, as soon as you've built a website, as soon as you put your, your product onto uh, a website, onto the internet, you are global and you've got to cope with that and you become a global brand straight away. Whether you like it, whether you're a tiny company or whether you're a large company, and we've got to change the way we're thinking about things straight away. So are we doing well enough? We're doing very well, but we can do better. My goodness, we can do better. But at subtext of what you said, seems to me to be that um, when British businesses, SMEs, um, go into exporting, into thinking about um, overseas markets, as people used to describe them, they're, they're um, scared and parsimonious and confused. Um, so, yes, uh, I don't really mean it as confused. I yeah. just don't think they're well informed. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to do is make sure that, mm. that on that list that says things I must research are things like my brand name internationally. You know, you know, when you're naming your brand, when you're naming your product, actually just to do that Google search that checks, to just check with other markets to find out whether other people are trading under that name is a really good start. Now, here's a difficult one. Oh. Does UKTI <laughs> do enough for your members? Well, actually, I've got to say that UKTI, all their international trade advisors, are our members. So ah. I have to tell you that they're so very... So it's like that. They're, <laughs> uh, shoulder to shoulder. They're, they're very well informed, but um, I do think that there is a, a basic education level as perhaps a little bit too much hold holding of hands and perhaps it could be a little bit more come on go out and find out for yourselves well I think we ought to have clear comparisons you know I was hearing yesterday that I mean, people talking uh, in a panel like this about 
um, uh, uh, recovery, the road to recovery, the global road to recovery, the European road to recovery, the national road to recovery, and hearing some extraordinary numbers. And the numbers said that some of our key uh, developed competitors were, in terms of GDP, at 1% above peak, i.e. peak being that point before the grim slide. We, on the other hand, were 4% behind peak. You know, it's as well, you know, one doesn't want to be gloomy, but it's as well to know these things, because you've got to start from somewhere real. And, you know, in terms of the brand picture, if it is, as you say, and the most important thing, or one of the most important things in, in overseas investment, I wonder whether we are serious enough and systematic enough and prepared enough to invest. Are we really there? And is it all going to get much, much worse? So, for instance, talking to somebody who's been very active in all sorts of new businesses in China recently, only, only, this was only last week, he was saying that we were nowhere compared with our European competitors in most of the fields that mattered. Anyway, is that a branded issue? Well, ultimately it is. I mean, these are, these are all branded issues. No, I don't think so. Can I, I mean, the reason why Britain lags behind Germany uh, in China, and it, it isn't true that we're nowhere compared to France or Italy uh, or Spain, it just isn't true, but we are way behind Germany. And the fact is that Germany exports manufactured products, which they're good at, mm. like cars mm. and machine tools, and we tend to export more services. We do, uh, we, you know, we're now incidentally exporting quite a lot of Land Rovers and Jaguars, uh, mm. and Bentleys and Rolls Royces there, but nevertheless, we're- Good never German and Indian things. <laughs> no, good German and Indian owned things, no, no, manufactured yeah. in Britain, my yeah. point again. But, but um, yeah, we, are, yeah, we have got to recognize that our manufacturing sectors, what people have been saying the whole time, includes the services sector or components of the services sector. That's what we're good at, and we are catching up in, in China. But I mean, your more general point is right. We are indeed 4% behind the peak, and we will remain 4% behind the peak in the sense that we have our financial services uh, sec segment of the economy has lost uh, activity, which is not going to be regained. Mm certainly not in any uh, near time. So, we have, so actually, manufacturing and service, other services of services need to fill that gap, and we need to work harder than our competitors in order to make up that 4% gap. So I agree with you, we need to work hard. I just don't think you want to be too gloomy about our present state of play as, as an exporter. Now it's your turn. Gent in the front. I'm Sandy Walkington. Um, Cho Enlai famously said when he was asked about the success of the French Revolution, he said it was too soon to tell. <laughs> and I listened to the comments about overseas ownership, and I wonder if it's too soon to tell. And I just wonder if we're overly complacent about the implications of JLR now being owned by Tata. And I know the current production is happening in the UK, but if there's less skin in the game in terms of the ownership of that company and therefore less incentive to think about what needs to be done in terms of education and schooling and all the issues that were covered this morning, 
then is there a real risk that in the end it'll become so uncompetitive and then people will just say, well, fine, we've got the brand, Jaguar Land Rover. It can all be made in Borneo or Burma or whatever it may be. And just one quick example, Deutsche Bahn gave a presentation recently on their operations in Europe and they are a leading European public transport operator. Why are they a leading European, the leading European public transport operator? Because they bought a British company called Arriva. And Arriva went out and built a European network. Deutsche Bahn was a state-owned company that became a corporation, government-backed in Germany, said, how do we become a European operator? We buy an existing European operator. And British financial institutions owning Arriva said, whoopee for that, and took the cash. And suddenly, what was a British-owned leading European, the first one trying to get into formerly monopoly markets, was just bought by the Germans. Now, I'm not sure what the value out of that is at all, actually. Um, shall I go first? Yes. Uh, sorry. I mean, I've always thought that remark about Joe and I was pretty stupid, actually. It's, I mean, we know what we think about the French Revolution, and the idea that we're going to think differently in 30 years' time from now that some development is going to happen, I think, is, is simply wrong. Uh, and in the same way, I think we do know about investment. It has been a great success, Sandy. Uh, and uh, Peter Luff mentioned the Japanese car manufacturers. I mean, we would not have a car industry were it not for the Japanese car manufacturers. We do, and it's enormously successful, and we're a net exporter. Um, I, I mean, if you take the example of JLR now, yes, I, I mean, you, you, actually, you're, you're a bit behind the times. The JLR is starting to manufacture in China. They will manufacture Jaguars and Land Rovers overseas. But equally, JLR was, on, was, was going downhill, was going to end up in receivership and go out, out of business. What the Indians have done is to put massive amounts of money into R&D, massive amounts of money, in, in particular into product development. And JLR will, will be a global, globally competitive, globally successful manufacturer. Uh, manufacturer with a lot of activity in this country. I mean, the example of Dyson is a very good one. You know, James Dyson moved his manufacturing out of Britain to Malaysia. Much criticism, much tearing of hair. But the fact is that Dyson is now a larger company, has more people working in this country now than it did when he moved the manufacturing out of out because he's he's globally competitive, and. I just don't accept that foreign ownership is going to make us is going to make us either uh, it's going to make us more competitive, and it's going to make bigger brands which will have more economic activity in this country. I think the future of this country depends upon being an open trading nation and being more open than any other country to investment. And in 20 years' time, you may be proved right, but I, or in 200 to take Chu and Lai's example, but I don't think so. It's a very contentious issue. How does anybody else feel about that? That brands, major brands like JLR or Cadbury <laughs> yes. are owned overseas. And it, JLR is a special case because, as you say, Andrew, it, 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 it was um, in a very unhappy place inside Ford. And before that, it had been in decline because it hadn't been managed right, not because it was incapable of producing fantastic things. But what about Cadbury? You know, there are very strong feelings about Cadbury. A major British brand owned yeah. like a trophy. 
Peter, if I may, um, one of the things that strikes me is that, uh, you know, I, I've been alive for far too long now, but when I first started, uh, I know, but when I first started out uh, doing my marketing degree, uh, people said to me, there's going to be a global village and it's going to be a global marketplace and, and that was sort of 30 years ago and I used to think, yeah, and I used to write it all down and I used to think, you can't quite see how this is going to happen. But actually, you know, this is what we're all experiencing now. Yeah. And although we're an island, so we find that very difficult to accept that, you know, we like to think of our things as being ours. And, you know, we are British, and unfortunately, we do have this characteristic that says, you know, that makes us different. But in actual fact, this is a global marketplace that, you know, we're building brands and then we're selling them. And then that's what I'm trying to say. We should be building new ones and having the expertise to make sure that everybody knows how to build a brand. So hopefully, we can take part in this global village because it's not going to constrict again. It's going to be a global marketplace from now onwards. There's no going back, I don't think. Yeah. Your former employers got exercised about this matter, didn't they? They, they did, yes. Um, I mean, I, I, I take a slightly different view. I actually think foreign ownership, by and large, has probably been good for the manufacturing sector. Um, certainly, if you look at the record of foreign countries, they tend to invest more per worker. Uh, they tend to put more into R&D. Um, and they've tended to be more successful in accessing global markets and for the most part they've been remarkably patient. You think about the huge sums of money that BMW put into uh, Rover Group, um, most of which it lost, uh, but it persisted with it for some years uh, before they actually gave up. Um, so I'm less worried about it. What I'm more worried about is the way that there's a lack of um, reciprocal access to companies in other countries. And sometimes I don't think we always apply the tests we ought to when we're talking about takeover, uh, uh, takeovers and mergers. And particularly asking some of the harder questions about is this really going to improve competition? Is this really going to raise innovation? Is this really going to have... Uh, a desirable effect on employment and R&D. So I'd be less worried about the question of foreign ownership and more about the conditions under which it takes place. Yeah. Dawn? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it sort of goes back to, to talking about um, the, the Britishness of the product that's produced by that brand that's represented, because I certainly, um, in, in my travels around, I'm looking at um, brands which do... They do import, they do export, they do import goods as well as making in, in this country. And I'm constantly looking for which are the bits of that brand that are made in the original location, with the original provenance, with the true provenance. And actually they sit for me at the top of the pyramid, they sit at the top luxury part of that brand. If you want to really buy that brand, you've got to, you, what you need to buy the bit that's got the, the Made in Britain tag that's the origin of that brand. So, and then, then there is flexibility for other products underneath so that the brand itself can grow. But I think, for me, I'd be looking to say, where's, where's the Land Rover that is built in Britain? Because that's the one I'd want to buy. Um, but there needs to be an offer for everybody. And I think that the research is showing that in luxury goods, and this isn't just about, with luxury goods brands, where they're re really starting to boom away in, in China, that the Chinese consumer wants the stuff that's made in the USA 
or in Europe, not down the road. Absolutely. More please. Emerson Roberts, Brompton Bicycle. Um, we're talking about brands, and my presumption is that brands, by definition, take time to build up, real brands. And by extension, brand strength in certain markets take time to develop. And I was just going back to the example you gave, Sir Andrew, about uh, the difference between the German automotive brands in China compared with our service industry brands, and that being the main difference. I, I was wondering, I have perhaps a different interpretation, which is that German companies took the view in the late 70s that this was a market they should be interested in. And perhaps the real difference is that in our country we don't yet take the long-term perspective. German brands were in Brazil 30 years ago. We're now thinking about going in there and capitalizing on this brick market, likewise China. Why didn't we think that 20, 30 years ago? What is the fundamental difference between their outlook and ours? Good. Now, whose fault is it in question? Um, uh, who in the UK should be strung up for not getting into the for not getting into the BRICS 30 years ago? Well, I, I mean, I agree with the general uh, point you're making, um, and one people set of people you should blame the government. Because if you go to Beijing, you will see there's a big tower, which is the German tower, and Lufthansa is there, and Siemens is there, and Daimler-Benz is there, and so, so forth. Uh, in other words, the German government decided about 15 years ago that they were going to put a, make a real effort uh, with China. They put a lot of German money behind it, uh, they, they, uh, and they, they've been projecting and promoting uh, German brands. And I think we haven't done as much. I, I don't think we put nearly enough money into uh, overseas promotion. Still, even though the present government is, is committed and given high priority, we don't do enough. And we don't do enough at, at, uh, at government level. I think companies have a problem. In Germany, you have to belong to your Chamber of Commerce. Okay? It's a legal requirement to belong to your Chamber of Commerce. Chambers of Commerce are really effective at as export assisters and export promoters. Our chambers of commerce in this country are much less vibrant and successful because they don't have the funds and they don't have the support from business and industry. So I think, you know, let's point the finger there. And um, there is perhaps a sort of slightly short-term approach in Britain. Uh, I think you're right, German companies, particularly all the family-owned companies, do uh, uh, take a much longer-term view British companies do tend to take perhaps a shorter term view. So we can blame everybody, but why, why bother to blame people? Let's look to the future and think what can we do now to catch up with the Germans. Right. In a caring way, <laughs> how should we think about this difference? Between the... Between that German investment, that early investment, that strategic, and as you say, Andrew, national investment, in a presence, a, a total country brand, major brand presence in those places early on. Well, I think the great lesson from Germany is they specialised in the things they're really good at, uh, which are not substitutable in these countries. If you, if you look at where the, the big German export successes have been, they've been in that very sophisticated, medium-sized engineering sectors, which these countries cannot get anywhere else.
they must come to places like Germany to get those goods. It's given them a huge head start. Um, our manufacturing industry simply isn't as strong in those areas as the Germans. So a lot of this comes down to fundamental questions of in industrial structure. Um, the country which has always baffled me is why we, aren't, why we don't have a much, much bigger presence in India. Um, shared heritage, shared language, um, great deal of familiarity with the culture, strong community here. Our trade with India is pathetic. It's, it's actually lower than some other major European countries which have got no connection historically with India to any great extent. And um, asking the question, I can understand why, why we perhaps don't do as well in China as we should do. I'm baffled by why we're not doing better in India. Any more? Do, you, do you want an answer to that? <laughs> Any more views? You know the answer? No, no, why, no. We're not, why we're not in, in India? Well, it'll, it'll all come out in the wash. Young man at the back there. I wondered if the panel, however, uh, would care to comment on the experience with the company that President Obama so often described as British Petroleum. And uh, when we think about that, um, and we think about the mistakes that were made, which were not environmental, in my judgment, nearly so much as to do with poor productivity, poor maintenance, poor technology, uh, understanding, and all of those things. How do you interpret that result, and what kind of brand lessons would you, would you take from it? Because there's an example of destruction of brand value, because BP... I think it's right to say, has slipped out of the magic hundred. You'd expect it to be there just as a function of scale. But the brand values attributed to it now have slipped out of the hundred. What about that? Who did what? I, th I think, I, I suspect what it shows is that the company wasn't thinking about the risk associated with the loss of brand value. If it had, it would have done everything to make sure that brand was protected. And for a, a, any company involved in oil, gas, exploration, drilling, making sure that you absolutely follow all the procedures, you've got really top-level uh, operation, is essential. And I suspect when people were looking at what's the balance between expenditure and uh, the risk associated with it, no one was thinking, well, actually, we ought to think about what would be the hit to the company if our brand value goes down that much. Uh, Nico McDonald, um, I think we're a bit of an out-of-date view of what brands are, quite frankly. We talked about BP just now. Um, it's been widely acknowledged that Apple has uh, moved above Exxon and General Electric in the market capitalization, partly because it's got a better understanding of what a brand is, and it combines product design and information technology and interface design and marketing and media and bringing complexity to users in a way which is simple, relatively simple and attractive. And I do wonder how well in the UK we're supporting, I mean, I'm not a believer in can we create the next Apple or Google, I certainly wouldn't want to create the next Google, um, but uh, how well are we doing at actually supporting the creation of companies working in this area? And I had a conversation with a friend of mine at a company called Berg, a silicon roundabout company, no less. Recently, they're trying to create a little printer come cloud network for the home, which seems like a pretty ambitious thing. Lots of people have homes. Um, and uh, you know, there's huge potential for it. And they were talking about the problem of getting it manufactured in the UK, finding the electronics, the thermal printer, 
uh, the assembly and so on, and either finding companies that weren't interested in that because it was too small run or didn't have the capability, didn't have the tooling and so on. And I wonder how well we can do the brand side of things if we can't support the initial startup of these kind of companies. Uh, eventually it will be manufactured in Malaysia or Thailand or China or some such. Um, but without that kind of fundamental infrastructure, and as a point one of the speakers made earlier on, are we going to be able to develop the brands of the future or will they you know, sort of be starved of oxygen in a way? Um, I'd like to answer that actually because I work with a lot of small companies and uh, you know, subsequent to this dizzy career that I had. Um, and, and what I'd just like to say is that there really is a huge amount of help out there for businesses. It's not that difficult. You just have to use your common sense. You get on there and you look. There's an electronics federation, engineering federation, that would be able to find you a company. They've got 7,000 members. I cannot believe that of those 7,000 members, they cannot produce that for you. I think if you find you go to the Business Link website, you go to UKTI, you go to biz, there are a huge amount of help out there. Miles is involved down here with manufacturing in this, um, uh, the manufacturing industries. There is, there's a Miles in all the different regions of this country. There are huge numbers of people out there helping. And if you can't find it, then actually I don't think they need to be in business, those people, to be uh -huh. quite honest. Well, Sorry. But, they used to be this, they, people used to talk in a time long gone by in the UK about something called venture capital and in other lands they still do but if you saw the size of the private equity industry which doesn't do venture capital is that fair? So those seed corn brands absolutely are the complete seed corn stage are less likely to get the, that sort of intervention and help than rather dinosauric businesses which need a, an arm sawn off mm. and profitably put into the marketplace. Is that fair? I think there's, there's some truth in that. The, the real problem tends to be in two areas. One is when you've got something which is ready to go to market and you need to take the next big step and it's difficult to get funding into, into that area. The second is SMEs who are going very rapidly and they're the ones which um, tend to struggle most to get the, uh, the capital into them, partly because they're in sectors often which um, banks and financial institutions don't understand particularly well, uh, partly because they're often dealing with intangible capital and they understand that even less well than they do at the sectoral point, um, and partly because these are fast-changing businesses uh, and they need the decisions made quickly, and our decision-making capacity is often quite slow. Um, I would say, you know, the hope that we'll create another Google or Apple in this country, I think, is misguided. Um, I think, if you think about the, those big companies, they're all they're virtual American, they're all IT sector. There's a degree of international specialisation going on. I think what you should aim at is creating the equivalent of the Mittelstadt in this country, but thinking particularly across high-tech services and manufacturing. And that's the base on which actually this German manufacturing machine, which everyone admires, sits. And we don't really have that equivalent here, and we badly need it. But if it's not to be um, in IT, it's not to be at that scale, could we at least have a Gucci? Um, <laughs> we can have we, Gucci. Gucci, we do. We, we have, have Stella McCartney, yes. we have Paul Smith, I, we have, I mean, I we have, have lots of Gucci's. I, 
Paul Smith is the largest fashion house in Japan. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm, I know exactly what Paul Smith's figures are, and it's not the same uh, as Gucci Group. It's not the same as LVMH. It's lovely, it's most admirable, but it's a completely we have, scale. Bur yes. we have Burberry, which is on a big scale. Yes, I would almost submit that Burberry is almost an American company. Certainly its management is very brilliant American people using a, um, a British brand in brilliant ways. But it, Burberry is on that list, just down the bottom. Are we going to have any more? But you, I mean, you're right. We don't have those those groups, those luxury um, branding groups, who take design talent and 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 good um, quality brands and make them into super brands, which the Europeans very definitely do. And in turn, I think it's particularly admirable in the Italian market because, in turn, those those that Italian group with the various brands that fall in its stable have supported the Italian manufacturer's specialism mm -hmm. as well. And okay, it's at a very, it's at a high level, it's at a high cost, it's at a high price, but it's highly desirable as well. So the machine exists, we, we've got the talent and the potential, the potential brands, but the machinery to turn them into world beaters doesn't exist in quite the same way you're saying. It exists in Europe. Um, at that point, I'm, I'm being signalled out, because we could go on forever, I have to stop. Thank you, thank you, thank you everyone. Um, thank you to our partners, BAE Systems, to Coca-Cola Enterprises, to City AM, our media partner, to the Institute of Government, our hosting partner in this impossibly, wonderfully grand bit of 1850, I'd love to know when. Thank you to our brilliant speakers for being here and not running the world, just for a moment, being here with us. And thank all of you for coming. You've been wonderful.